Um, so yeah, what I'm going to focus on is going to be the contest or the tension between uh, national identity and European unity, nationalism and Europeanism. But as part of this, I also want to focus on the institutions of the EU that, that were sort of explained in that video, but maybe you didn't pick up in full first time around. Uh, and really, there's, there's two things going on here. One is the existence of national identities, but also the existence of something called the European idea, the European dream, uh, variously um, called European integration, where uh, there's a group of people, depending on how large it is, it differs by each, by each country, uh, that seems to want what's known as ever closer union, so a move towards uh, Europeanism and away to some extent from uh, na nationalism, national identity. And that tension, I think, defines the debate over uh, the EU, Eurosceptics being more in that nationalist camp. So in terms of the European idea, it's important to, to recognize that this European idea goes back well before the formation of the European Union itself in 1957. Uh, so it in fact goes back all the way back to the fall of the Roman Empire and the rise of the Catholic Church. Um, and so these two elements, this desire to recreate the Roman Empire, the desire to recreate Christendom, a unified Christendom, those were the two key elements in the original uh, European ideas. So for example, the Holy Roman Empire, which was in present-day Germany, really sought it, styled itself as uh, today's Roman Empire. We are the inheritors of the Roman Empire, because the Roman Empire, of course, unified all of Europe. And, and Europe, the term Europe even, uh, only really dates from about the year 1000. So it, it's really the area where Christianity became the dominant religion. So Christianity was the key to that European idea originally. Uh, and in fact, the French, uh, you know, Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire, but also competing European kingdoms all vied to be uh, the leader of this re reunified Christendom, reunified Rome. Something very similar to what happened in the Muslim world where different states vied to be Caliphate. You know, hear the term caliphate used by ISIS nowadays. Uh, that idea of a unified religious realm. Um, the notion of Europe, however, does replace Christendom sometime in the 1300s as the key idea. Uh, also important to note that there have been very uh, a number of different schemes over centuries, going back to the 1300s, to try and reduce the amount of warfare in Europe to bring the leaders of different states together. And, and I'm just going to lay out one of the earlier schemes, which is that of the uh, king of Bohemia and present-day Czech lands, George Podobrad, who had a scheme to try and unify Europe against the threat posed by both the Turks, well, especially the Turks at this time in the late 1400s. And if you look at these key institutions, uh, he wanted an assembly, court of justice, arbitration between European countries, a unified army, and uh, a common budget. Now, a lot of that stuff sounds pretty modern. It sounds very similar to the kind of debates we're having now uh, in the Euro European Union. So the European Union contains a lot of those elements. So it's just to say that the dream has been going uh, for a very, very long time. 
Here's another example of the European idea uh, several hundred years ago. Uh, Duke de Sully in France had this idea of a grand design. Again, the emphasis on trying to have uh, peace in Europe, unity in Europe, a joint army to fight common enemies, uh, instead of talking about China and India and the United States, the key enemies for much of European history were the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, in other words, uh, who, of course, threatened the gates of Europe uh, by, well, they came as close as Vienna in 1683. So the Turks really, they, they conquered uh, much of southern and eastern Europe, or southeastern Europe, and so they were seen as a big threat. Increasingly, the Russian Empire under the Tsars was seen as a threat in the east as well. So part of this was, was about a common defense, but then trade promotion, uh, a common language, in this case French, now that's to some extent been replaced by English. Um, and talk about a federal Europe in a way which, however, also respected the distinctiveness of the parts. And that's, of course, a big debate. You know, how much uh, is Europe about its constituent nations, or how much is it an entity which is bigger than the sum of its parts? Uh, and, and so this is where this European idea harked back to those older pan-European ideas of uh, the Roman Empire and reviving the Roman Empire and reviving Christendom uh, and papal authority. So this was, of course, the Reformation had started, so that was no longer as simple as it once was. But Christendom, a key part of it. I'm kind of fast-forwarding about 300 years. <laughs> Now, I did fast forward 300 years. I just want to say that over those intervening centuries, the, the, the source of the European idea shifts a bit from Christendom and, and the Roman Empire to the Enlightenment. And so you had people, uh, all kinds of, you had socialists who had their vision for Europe. You had liberals who had their vision for Europe. A lot of the European elites thought about you, who, who were involved in what's known as the European Republic of Letters. Uh, who, who traveled around Europe, that already existed. So you already had a kind of European cultural elite within which these ideas were quite <coughs> popular. And that's kind of a, another of the tensions is that uh, Europeanism and European feeling has always been, to some extent, a more elite sentiment than a mass sentiment. So there's a tension between the cos cosmopolitan elite in Europe and uh, more nationally oriented mass publics. Uh, and that's also why there's a tension to some extent between popular democracy and populism on the one hand and elite technocracy on the other. Now an example of, of how this is emerging in the 1930s prior to World War II already you had uh, those on the French left such as French Foreign Minister Aristide Briand who uh, issues a memorandum calling for a union for economic, political and social cooperation. Uh, now, his, this memorandum didn't go anywhere, but it's important to note that he was backed up by uh, the pan-European movement. These were popular movements in several European <coughs> countries, notably in France, but not only in France, <coughs> uh, that had hundreds of thousands of members. So you had a very strong social movement that was trying to push for these pan-European ideas. That's to say that this idea of Europe really existed as, as a major cause in the 1920s, 1930s. And it was taken up by the French left, but it really fell on deaf ears. It didn't go anywhere. Uh, but then it was adopted by uh, resistance movements against the Nazis. 
uh, those that were not communist were liberal pan-Europeans. And so they very much were influenced by this idea of uh, pan-Europeanism. After the war, um, some of the leading pan-Europeans, such as Count Kalergi, who has a little street which is about maybe 10 yards long in Paris, named after I just saw the sign by accident when I was walking by. But anyway, he's, uh, he influences the ideas of Winston Churchill, who calls for a United States of Europe in, 19, in a speech in 1946. So someone like Churchill, who is really the, an arch-nationalist, can call for a United States of Europe. Clearly, the war had a big, big effect, a big traumatic effect, and influenced a lot of the idealism. But that idealism was rooted in these earlier notions of common European identity, common European idea that originally were based on Christendom and the revival of the Roman Empire. Um, that speech, of course, Churchill had no intention of having Britain be part of the United States of Europe. It was really for the continent only. But still, there was pressure uh, for Europe to increase its cooperation because they feared there could be, you know, there had been two world wars. They didn't want another one. So that really was the the driving force. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, in the past you had all these schemes that were drawn up by Sully and Podibrad and William Penn and all these people, and they, they got nowhere. Um, but after the Second World War, actually, you, you see them starting to get uh, institutional traction for the very first time. Uh, and that's quite interesting. And, and this might be because of improved communications through rail and telegraph and telephone and so forth that made, made it easier for different people to communicate uh, across national boundaries. Uh, now, certain countries, certain groups, certain parties were more in favor of European unity than, than others. Christian democratic parties, which are parties that are largely rooted in Catholicism, um, link back to that older European idea of a shared Catholic heritage of Europe, when Europe was united under the papacy, under the Christendom. Um, so to some extent, Catholic Christian Democrats are more pro-European than other groups. But socialists, too, are relatively pro-European. Both, both Catholicism and socialism are cosmopolitan, post-national ideologies to some extent. And that might have been a reason why they were more pro-European. Similarly, with humanitarians, pacifists, they also more transnational in their outlook, more cosmopolitan. And then finally, you had a group who just said, well, look at all the economic benefits we can have if we have free trade. And those of you who take economics or have taken economics know that uh, you know, if, Britain is, is, if, if Britain is more specialized in producing milk and Spain's more specialized in producing wine, if, if Britain tries to produce wine and milk and Spain produces wine and milk, they'll each produce much less of both. But if Britain specializes in milk and Portugal and wine and they trade, they can each have more of both goods. That's the sort of really at its crudest. Uh, and then the economic theory, which says free trade gives everybody more of everything because people can specialize in what they're good at and trade for more of what they want. Um, so that kind of logic of economy of scale and, and, and free trade also playing into this. Um, it's, it's worth saying, uh, yeah, I'll come to this idea of what's known as functionalism in a minute. Uh, and this is kind of the argument that um, there's an economic logic to having a free trade area 
And because of that expansion of uh, economic activity beyond the borders of one particular country to other countries into a free trade area, you then need political institutions to regulate that free trade area, because everyone has to know what the rules are. You've got to have one central regulatory body for the free trade area. Which so you know, you know, you first have the economic, then that necessitates the political, and then the argument is well, if you've got a common a political regulator, you need to have, first of all, common language to, to, to discuss it, and so you're moving toward a common culture. So it's this idea that uh, once you have <coughs> one thing, it functionally requires you to have political integration which functionally requires cultural. And in that sense, you're kind of leapfrogging your way towards uh, a common European federation or even a common European nation. Now, the first indication of this was something called the Council of Europe, which is uh, formed in 1949. It's not actually part of the European Union, but it has many of these elements which had been mentioned over the centuries as key to the European idea. Um, so it involves bringing uh, representatives from all the European countries together into an assembly. It talks about, uh, well, it involves a European Court of Human Rights. So agreeing common standards, common legal practices and norms. Uh, and so that, that is, is moving towards uh, this idea of uh, European values, common European values which inform uh, common legal systems. You also have, importantly, steps taken on the cultural front uh, moving towards a common culture, if you like, common symbols. So the 12-star uh, European flag was developed in 1955. You have a Europe Day established on 5th May 1949, a European anthem based on Beethoven's Ode to Joy. I know it's the anthem for many <laughs> countries and different activities, so it's not only uh, exclusive to the EU, but uh, the fact that that was adopted in 1972. So the Council of Europe has 46 members, so that's sort of a, a sort of uh, embryonic Europeanism, and it has some of the features that later become established in the EU. The European Coal and Steel Community, uh, 1952, and the European Economic Community, 1957, are seen as really the, the, the most important forerunners of the EU, uh, and we can kind of talk about a European Union uh, more or less taking root after this date. There were only six original members, uh, which you saw in the film. Um, and this was taking the economic logic of saying, again, if we have free trade, that'll make all of us better off. So it's a self-interested logic. Yeah. I'm sorry, why does the flag have 12 stars? Um, it was, that was the initial Council of Europe developed flag. The Council of Europe is not the European economic communities. So they actually have no, no relationship to each other. They're quite separate, even though they, the spirit of one kind of infused the other. So the six members of the EEC 1957 has no, no relationship to the Council of Europe. And the Council of Europe developed the, the flag with the 12 states, which I guess okay. would have been 12 countries. Were there 12 states at the time? But the 12 states they had in mind that were members of the Council of Europe. Okay. So you had then, uh, in 1957, the creation of this uh, more or less economic free trade style community, however, with um, a series of political institutions that govern that economic community. 
company. So you already had now uh, meeting, you know, bringing together uh, representatives from the different states to come together and form policy. So in that sense, you're already developing these uh, supranational political institutions in the 1950s. And then what we're going to see is a, an increase <coughs> from this original six countries to the present 28. Uh, I know it says 27 there, but it's now 28. So there's two things going on with the European Union then. Um, as we move from the European Economic Community to the present day Union, it's deepening and expansion, really. Expansion uh, over space in taking in new countries, but also uh, deepening. So, so new functions being added. So initially it was just the coal and steel. Then you have cooperation uh, over, over the nuclear industry, nuclear power in this year atom. Then you get common foreign and security policies, common justice and home affairs, cooperation, police and judicial. And later on, of course, we have things like free movement coming in the euro, which are, of course, part of that. But the aim is you're building on more and more functions. And it's that deepening which, in many ways, is the most controversial aspect. Because any function that is picked up by the EU is, to some extent, a loss of sovereignty for uh, a member state. To some extent, if you think about foreign policy, if the EU were to really run foreign policy instead of Britain, then uh, in something like the fish war between Spain and Canada, where <coughs> public sentiment in the United Kingdom was really on the side of the Canadians, they would have to sort of say, no, we're going to support the EU's foreign policy of backing our member state, Spain. So you can begin to see where uh, that's not going to fly very easily. Um, Okay, or, or what is the position on the war in Iraq? Uh, you know, these, so these kinds of foreign policy issues tend to divide uh, different member states from each other. So it's going to be really tricky to agree a common foreign policy. That's just one example of where, as you kind of expand the number of functions that are within, that are, that are dealt with at the European level rather than the national level, uh, there are more and more splits and divisions that you have to deal with between the member states. Now to the actual political structure of the EU, which is uh, not always that easy to grasp. And we kind of start with uh, a number of institutions which I would argue are federalist. That is that they are pushing, or the spirit of those institutions tends to be more in the direction of more powers for Europe, more um, supranational integration, away from the nation state. So in particular, uh, the European Commission, which you can think of as kind of like the national bureaucracy uh, in Washington, um, except that it has the power to initiate legislation. And the European commissioners, each uh, member state gets uh, a commissioner. And so those, they are appointed. Uh, but generally speaking, that the commission has a pro-European outlook. Not, not exclusively, but generally it does. So that's kind of an agency that is, to some extent, pushing in that supranational direction. Similarly, the European Court of Justice, yes, the justices are appointed from the member states. But again, uh, European law tends to supersede national law. So once again, the decisions of the European Court tend to override those of, uh, of the nation states, just as the decisions of the European Commission um, on different rules and regulations 
have to be implemented in the member states, so too with the European Court of Justice. So that, which is kind of like the US Supreme Court, uh, because its rulings tend to take precedence over the national courts, um, that is also seen as an infringement of national sovereignty. Uh, and finally, the European Parliament, now it's elected by uh, people from across the European Union, uh, and it's very similar to, to Congress, so it, it, uh, or the House of Representatives, so it votes on legislation, so it can initiate legislation as well. Uh, but it too tends to be more pro-European, even though of course there's a block of Eurosceptic uh, MEPs, particularly uh, parties such as the UK Independence Party or the PVV in the Netherlands. And then you come to the European Council, formerly Council of Ministers. Now this was uh, a body that was usually seen as more representative of the nation states, more like a kind of United Nations. Uh, maybe the closest analogy in the U.S. system is to is the Senate, where each state gets two senators, uh, and, and they are supposed to stand up for the interests of their state. And likewise for the Council of Ministers. This was seen as a more, uh, what's known as intergovernmental organization, a bit more like the United Nations, where each nation is more or less going to bat for, for itself and not really thinking about the European project as much. Although even in the Council, you do have some, some of that spirit of uh, ever closer union or integration. Uh, but in the council, you have something called qualified majority voting. There, it used to be the case that every minister had to agree for um, legislation to be passed. But now that's shifted increasingly to something called qualified majority voting, which just means you have to get a certain percentage of member states representing a certain percentage of the European population to agree to, uh, to a law. And that's, as you can see, that's very different from saying we've got to get 100% of the member states. If you say, oh, we only need to get 65% of member states, a country can be overruled. So that country no longer has, has a veto power, no longer has sovereignty in the system. And so the, the fact that you have QMB means that the majority of you in Europe can override the view of any particular nation. So that again means national sovereignty suffers and the European layer uh, acquires more power. Um, and so we can kind of begin to talk about the EU and the balance between uh, national and European uh, sovereignty. So on the one hand, you could say that Europe is like a super state, like a federation in a federation, which the U.S. kind of is, power is really um, power is really held by the nation, but the states do have certain powers as well. But this, the, 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 the federal government is more powerful and really is the focal point. Um, in a confederation, by contrast, the parts have more power. They delegate some power to the center, but most of the parts reside in the, uh, or, sorry, most of the powers reside in the confederal units themselves. And then finally, you have something like the United Nations, which is an international organization where the UN itself has almost zero power. All of the power is located in the nation states. And if you look at the EU, in some regards, it is more of a federation. So in terms of, you know, there's the Eurozone, and they're, they're calling monetary policy. So, the nation states have no power in that regard, uh, 
I mean, yes, they can try and influence policy, but they don't have a veto power. Uh, agricultural, trade, and environmental policy. Um, also, free movement of peoples uh, and European citizenship are also things that the European, uh, that the nation states cannot control. So that's really at the European level. In other respects, consumer protection, internal affairs, the EU is more of a confederation, particularly when it comes to the spending of money. This is very important that the EU budget only represents about one and a half percent of the gross domestic product of Europe, whereas national budgets tend to re represent kind of 40 or 50 percent. So, you know, in terms of taxing and spending, that's pretty much national. There's very little willingness uh, of people to let the European Union tax people and spend their money and redistribute it across the Union. That's kind of an indication of when the, when the rubber hits the road, people aren't really willing to give uh, very important power to the European level. That hasn't been the case. So most of the power has been in other areas, uh, regulation, free movement, monetary policy, things which are somewhat peripheral to a lot of people's daily lives. They don't necessarily engage with that a lot. Uh, and this is sort of one of the issues with European democracies that's seen as remote. Most people in this country or other European countries really wouldn't see the European Union operating in their daily lives in any real meaningful way. At this point about qualified majority voting is important because it represents a shift away from national veto, national sovereignty. And particularly since the Nice Treaty 2000 and Lisbon in 2008, an increasing number of decisions are taken by qualified majority vote, QMV, rather than unanimity. And the thresholds have been coming down, so instead of needing a very high percentage agreement amongst countries, the more it drops, the more that threshold drops, the more countries can be overruled by uh, European institutions. But of course, as the EU expands from 6 to 12 to 27 to 28, if you actually went for unanimity, it'd be almost impossible to get things done. So you almost have to, for practical reasons, you have to keep lowering that threshold, but then that starts to infringe on um, the national sovereignty of particular individual states. Uh, so this is, again, a step in the direction of integration of ever closer union that shift uh, from unanimity to QMV with Lisbon. And in these areas with Lisbon, you saw, uh, in terms of judicial cooperation, industrial policy, free movement, economic financial cooperation. In all of these ways, there was a shift to Q QMV. Now, they'll still try and get unanimity. They'll try and get every country to agree. They don't want to railroad legislation in over the heads of particular reluctant member states. But they can do it, and they have done it. Um, so, but importantly for social and tax policy, that QMV was not adopted. So it's not there in every area, but integrationists want to have it in as many areas as possible. Uh, you had EU citizenship, freedom of movement, which comes in, uh, and this is a very important step because it allows people to move and take up residence anywhere in the EU. Uh, they have the right to vote in local elections, not in national elections. So the 2015 general election, uh, someone from France couldn't vote in. But they can vote in the European elections, and they can vote in their local elections, and even run in those elections. So it gives foreigners important uh, citizenship rights in other countries. 
so that too can be seen as an infringement of uh, the principle of absolute national sovereignty. So it's again, I'm trying to stress this balance between national and European power, uh, a balance between nation state and pan-European interests, uh, but also between idealistic pan-Europeans who want to move towards agricultural union, towards a federal Europe, almost a United States of Europe, European nation type worldview, and the other worldview which says, no, the EU, yes to free trade area, as we saw from the conservative MEP, fine as a free trade area, fine as a talking shop, like a United Nations style place where members of uh, representatives from the different states can get together and talk over common problems, but no to this ever closer union. It has to also to be said that the European Union, and particularly the Commission and European idealists, have also come up with different analogies that I think were seen, or have been seen as quite threatening to the idea of the nation state. So one is ever closer union, and or sometimes the, the bicycle analogy, if we don't keep deepening and expanding, then you know, if you don't keep pedaling, you fall off the bicycle. Uh, but that view almost suggests that unless you're moving more and more and more <coughs> toward uh, European integration, then you can't have the project at all. It suggests a reluctance to step backward and to allow certain nation states to actually say, hold on, we don't want this. Um, so that's a problem. The other problem is this term Europe of the regions, which has been floated. Because in many nation states in Europe, like in this country, you've got Scotland, Wales, for example, that have their own national identity. Scotland wants to separate, or at least a portion of the Scottish public wants to separate. Similarly, in Belgium, you've got Flanders that wants you know, more independence from Belgium, and you've got Catalonia and the Basque country in Spain. So you have all, a number of different regions across Europe that's, that want either total or partial independence from their nation states. And most of these regions tend to be really pro-EU. And the EU has tried to reciprocate that by talking about the Europe of the regions, which is quite subversive because it's saying, we're not a Europe of nations, we're actually a Europe of regions. So that's kind of undercutting the nation state in the name of this greater European project. And that, too, has been seen as threatened by uh, nationalists who want to, to maintain this idea that national sovereignty, national identities are real. The European identity is artificial in many ways, constructed by these technocratic elites in Brussels who don't have de democratic legitimacy. You heard that talk that really Europe is not a demos. There's no public sphere. People aren't really thinking about European politicians, talking about them in the media. Uh, so that notion that there really is not a European identity is important. There are other institutions where this is, sometimes this becomes very manifest. So the European Court of Justice, since the early 60s, um, has more or less um, superseded national law in the sense that if you, are, if you lose your case uh, in a national court, you can appeal it up to the European Court of Justice. Uh, and if the ECJ rules in your favor, then that supersedes national law. Sometimes, of course, um, this can be an irritant. For example, Article 119 of the EEC Treaty on Equal Pay for Equal Work, or the EU as Social Community. Some of these kinds of legislation uh, have been seen as running against 
what the, what the vast majority of people in member states such as the United Kingdom want. So the social chapter in the EU, which it involves certain social rights which are seen as uh, running against the free market philosophy of the United Kingdom, and that has been seen as uh, a problem. Now, in, in many cases, EU states don't actually implement these EU directives, or they don't really honor them in full. So that is one way in which the nation states have kind of got around some of these directives, but still sometimes they have to uh, abide by them, and, and these are enforced to some extent. So there you see the national sovereignty and the European sovereignty grading at each other a little bit. Um, the question of EU expansion, as I mentioned, from the original 12 to uh, to the east, including uh, 27 member states. That also introduces a problem because a lot of these, these new states uh, tend to be poorer. The old ones more or less had relatively similar GDP per capita, similar levels of wealth. The new states, post-communist, tend to be much poorer. So they're going to demand a lot from the EU budget and arguably contribute a lot less. So this again shows you the problem of creating a state where you don't have a common identity. In the United States, generally, people don't write too much. I mean, they know that Massachusetts subsidizes Mississippi. In Canada, we have uh, the, the richer provinces like British Columbia and Ontario subsidizing the maritime provinces. And yes, that game sometimes is an issue, but it's not uh, an enormous issue because people say, OK, they are part of us. They're, they're part of the same country. So fine, yes, there's more poor people in Mississippi, but we, we accept that. Whereas in Europe, uh, the Mississippis, if you like, are over here, and, and the Massachusetts, uh, New Yorks are over here. Uh, it's much more of a problem. They, they, they're much more reluctant to spend a lot of money to raise the living standards of these people over here. Because there isn't a common identity. I mean, and, and you saw that in the Eurozone crisis. Why should we Germans? Um, bail out those Greeks. We're not, we're not Greek, we're German. Uh, so there isn't, whereas in the US, you know, bailing up a state wouldn't, wouldn't be as much of an issue because there's a shared national identity. So there's problem of a lack of European identity, whereas a national identity allows for that glue, which then allows you to, to make the transfer payments, uh, which are also necessary, by the way, to underpin something like a common currency. And one of the problems in the Eurozone crisis was that uh, there isn't that shared spirit, that willingness to bail out the Greeks, uh, that, that willingness to uh, spend a lot of money in Greece to, to alleviate the social problems that arise from the fact that you have a common currency. Uh, so yes, this is, this is put strains on the EU as it expands. Uh, and there's still that central lack of willingness to expand the European budget. Uh, but you kind of need a common EU budget if you want to get common roads, common rail, uh, common standard of living. Then you do need to actually spend money to redistribute the wealth. And that's uh, very problematic in the European Union. Uh, and it gets back to this issue of European identity. What is European identity? And you could, you might say, well, key to European identity, Christianity. If there's anything that defines Europe, it's that it's a Christian continent. Uh, the problem with that, of course, is you have divisions within Christianity between Catholicism and Protestantism, Protestantism, and now Orthodoxy in the East of Europe. 
And then you've also got non-Christian immigrants, uh, who may be Muslim or Hindu or whatever. So it's problematic to define Europeanism as Christianity. We saw that in the debates over the adoption of the European Constitution. Should we, you know, should they include a preamble that mentions God and the Christian heritage of Europe? In the end, that was taken out because it was deemed too controversial because it excludes the non-Christian minorities. You could talk about uh, the Greek or Roman heritage, the Roman Empire, but that's problematic because again, you have Muslim minorities. Are they to identify with this Greek or Roman inheritance? Are they to identify with the Reformation and the Enlightenment, which again, might not fit with the views of some minorities. <coughs> you could talk about uh, race, or Caucasian race as being a, a, you know, part of what defines Europe. But that's hugely controversial, naturally, again, because there are large numbers of Europeans who are not white. You can talk about geography. But even that's problematic, because the EU has been kind of expanding, and it might expand to Turkey, which never has historically been considered part of the European continent. Um, so even geography is in question. So there's no real um, defining feature of Europe other than European values, which tend to be tend to be liberal values, liberal values, democratic values, which are, first of all, not so distinct from other countries in the world. And secondly, they don't really provide you with a deep, deep identity. The same way that the old European identity was a deep identity because it was based on uh, Christendom and that heritage of being um, Roman, the Roman Empire, the new Roman Empire. Those themes have faded, and they've been replaced only by this sort of liberal democratic cosmopolitan worldview, which is in itself divisive because many in the European Union are in fact more attached to their nation states. Now, um, this sort of raises the question of how the European Union ever got going in the first place. And actually, it is important to note that some national identities are inherently more likely to be pro-European than others. So Britain is relatively anti-European for historical reasons, which I'll talk about in a minute. But France and Germany, um, why are they pro-European? Well, first of all, if you go back in history, French and German, French kingdoms, or Germany, which was the Holy Roman Empire, thought of themselves as potential unifiers of the continent, as the new Rome, the new Christendom. Uh, so they have that heritage of speaking about Europe in that intimate way. Secondly, you have very small countries like the Netherlands, Belgium, uh, Luxembourg, who are so small, and their cultures are kind of hybrids of, um, either they're hybrids of French and German, or they're just very small countries, and they really can only affect the world by being part of something bigger. So being very small, uh, they're, they're, they have an interest in coming into the EU. Uh, now, if you think about Britain, on the other hand, Britain has a history of uh, what I call splendid isolation, not getting dragged into European wars. Or if it does get involved in Europe's wars, uh, it tends to favor one side or the other to balance the power within Europe. So it tends to have been associate Europe with warfare and also with a lack of democracy, because most European countries were not democratic until the 20th century. In fact, even in the second half of the 20th century. So Britain kind of prides itself as a, as a sort of 
oasis of liberal democracy and free trade within a more autocratic European continent. Finally, you've got poorer countries. Poorer countries tend to be pro-European because they stand to benefit more from uh, joining the EU, both in terms of free trade and in terms of European structural funds. <coughs> uh, so we now come into uh, the more recent period in which the EU is, starts to run into trouble. And it starts to enter into a series of crises, of which the most recent is the migration crisis. And part of this comes from a slow shift of public opinion away from an enthusiastic view of the European Union towards a more skeptical view of the EU. Um, the first thing to say, if we look at you know, geograph geographically around Europe, strongest support for the EU tends to be either in the poorer countries that have joined recently, or again in smaller countries like the Netherlands. Um, poorer countries, Ireland originally was also a poorer country. Uh, support is moderate in the original six members, uh, and it's weakest in the Scandinavian countries and Britain. So these are where Euroscepticism tends to be strongest. Here's just uh, a graph from the Eurobarometer survey funded by the EU. Beginning in September 1973, going forward to 2004. And here's where you can kind of see some of these transformations in European support. The question is asked, generally speaking, do you think your country's membership of the European community is a good thing? And the proportion saying yes to that was about 60% in 1974 rises to a peak of you know, 70, over 70% 70 of Europeans saying this is a good thing in around 1990. Since that time, it's declined steadily. It's now somewhere around 50%, or not now, this is as of 2004, around 50% were saying that. So that kind of looks like a bit of a peak. And the proportion saying it's a bad thing, which was only 10% in 1991, is creeping up towards 20%. So that's kind of an indication that that shifting of public opinion. Uh, in the near, the second question here is asked, in the near future, do you see yourself as uh, just your nationality, i.e. just Dutch, or do you see yourself as Dutch and European, or do you see yourself as European only? So that, that question has been asked for a long time. Uh, again, we see that uh, trend since the early 1990s away from European identity and back towards I'm just Dutch, I'm not European at all. So if you look at that proportion who said I'm only my nation was kind of just about 50% in 1992 and it's sort of more like 60% by 2004 and the proportion saying I'm both European and my nation has kind of dropped off a little bit as well. So this rise of Euroscepticism is an important factor uh, and it dates from the early 1990s, but really starts to, to get momentum in the 2000s. Uh, for Anthony Smith, he would argue the problem with the European Union is it lacks a sense of common identity, and so it's the mobile elites uh, that are most easily able to identify with Europeanism, but the less mobile, more nationally oriented masses tend not to identify with that. And that is borne out in survey after survey. It's the people with the advanced university degrees, the better off, that tend to be more European in their um, sentiments, and those who have less than university are much less uh, keen on European identity. 
It's also the case that opposition to immigration, opposition to Europe tend also to be linked. So they're both features of nationalism to be anti-immigration, anti-Europe. And increasingly we see that with the far right as we saw last time, more far right parties are expressing that anti-EU sentiment. Uh, first big defeat, which you saw in that video, was the defeat of the European Constitution, the attempt uh, in 2007, I believe, to, um, to get the Constitution passed and it's defeated in a couple of core European countries, the Netherlands and France, two of the original six members, the citizenry, when given the chance in a referendum, vote against it. Uh, and what the Constitution would have done is it would have promoted a major advance of Europeanism to some extent at the expense of national sovereignty. It would have led to a lower QMB threshold um, and more power to the parliament and especially a new powerful president who would symbolize Europe. So they want to have a president. But of course that means a big figure who's going to compete with national prime ministers and presidents. And that was seen as a problem. And also a more powerful foreign minister, again competing with national foreign ministers, that too seen as a problem. If you look at this uh, referendum, uh, the referendums were held in 2005. Uh, and so in France, there was a no vote. Uh, and in the Netherlands, also a no vote. So of 69.3% turned out, 45.1% um, said no. So you get a, a majority then who are saying no in both France and the Netherlands. And the course, the question then becomes, well, why did they say no to the referendum? Pro-Europeans will say they really, what they were really saying no to was their own country's politicians. They didn't really understand Europe or the issues involved. They were voting against their own politicians who wanted them to say yes. Um, Whereas Eurosceptics would say no, citizens had a sense of what was going on. They were saying no to loss of national power, national sovereignty, uh, and that this is a message that the EU elite refused to heed because it then enacts the Lisbon Treaty, which, which embodies a lot of the provisions of the European Constitution without taking this to the people. So this is where some of the Eurosceptics are saying that European elites um, see democracy as a problem, they label it populism, they see the masses as an obstacle to their dream, uh, and so they get around it through technocratic uh, sleight of hand. Uh, so for example, you have the, a European president in, as part of the Lisbon Treaty, um, you have new powers for the commission, removal of national vetoes, and so forth. So you still get deepening going on, without the explicit consent of national populations. It was put to a referendum in Ireland that was initially defeated. The Irish politicians then said, oh no, we're going to have a second referendum. And they sort of said, it's going to be a disaster for the Irish economy. And then they were able to win the second referendum. But the view then was, amongst your skeptics, they didn't accept the verdict of the people. They kept, you know, they wanted to have referendums until they got the message that they wanted. So this too was seen as a violation of democracy. Um, we then come to uh, the Eurozone crisis, uh, which is precipitated by the 2007-2008 uh, economic uh, crash. Uh, and what's important about the Eurozone crisis is it really cut to the heart of what Europe meant to a lot of ordinary Europeans. If you look on this survey, 
Um, the question is, what does the EU mean to you personally? And the two most important things are freedom to travel, study, and work anywhere in the EU, and the euro as a currency. So the euro as a currency was actually really popular. You know, roughly 40% of Europeans said, you know, this is really important to me personally. Uh, and yet, both freedom of movement and the euro are some of the most contentious aspects of the EU, and they've both been linked to crises more recently. Um, and I think what the Eurozone crisis really underlines is the problem of trying to get uh, political and economic integration without a shared identity. Uh, because what was needed in the Eurozone crisis is a common monetary and fiscal policy. So you need to have, if you have a common currency, some parts of the currency zone, uh, which export a lot, uh, like Germany, uh, are going to really benefit from a low euro. Whereas other parts of the currency zone, like Greece, which <coughs> don't export as much, um, what they want is, uh, oh, sorry, what they want is the currency to fall so that they can then export. Uh, but because they're a common currency zone, the currency is higher than they would like. So Germany keeps that currency higher than Greece would like, and Greece keeps the currency uh, perhaps a bit lower uh, for the Germans. So, so because of this common currency, Germany is actually advantaged because it's able to, uh, it's able to export more easily because it's usually when you export a lot, the, your currency is going to start uh, to appreciate because you are a successful economy, uh, your currency gets more valuable. That makes it harder for you to export. Whereas if you are a less successful economy, your currency is supposed to fall, which makes it easier for you to, to export, which then again helps you out. But that automatic mechanism isn't there because you've got a single currency across the entire union. So the way it should work is, okay, Germany's going to benefit because it gets to export more easily and its currency doesn't appreciate. Uh, so it should, in a normal situation, give a lot of money to Greece uh, to, help, to help Greece out. So for example, help out the Greek budget help with public spending to stimulate the Greek economy. That should be what happens. But of course, because Germany doesn't see itself as part of the same nation as Greece, its taxpayers aren't willing to spend a lot of money on Greece. And so you weren't able to get the kind of wealth transfer that you need to get in, in a society that has a common currency. Because there's, there's really two ways you can deal with inequality in a country. One is uh, by transferring wealth from the federal government to uh, the state or the nation, or by monetary policy, letting your currency fall so you can then export your way to um, greater wealth. And so those tensions manifested themselves in this Eurozone crisis, again, underscoring the lack of a common national unity. What the European uh, integrationists were saying was, hey, come on, look, we need to have uh, a common European fiscal policy. We need to bail out the Greek banks we need to have a common fund that all the European member states pay into, which, in other words, means the wealthier member states are going to pay into this fund, which is then going to be distributed uh, to these Greek banks to bail them out. Um, now, that technocratic or technical solution presumes there's a common identity in the, in the member states. The fact there wasn't one meant that the member states were very reluctant to set up this bailout fund and to bail out the Greek banks and are still reluctant to, to provide a full bailout 
to Greece. So they hoped they could muddle through by giving them tranches of money, just enough to keep them in and avoid the next crisis. So it was seen as suboptimal kind of crisis management. European, uh, Pro-European said, no, we need to have more pooling of wealth, but they seemed to be ignoring the problem that most of the member states thought in national terms, not in European terms. All of this Eurozone stuff meant that the European Union continued to lose popularity. Uh, so across a whole series of countries, the percentage of citizens saying that membership of the EU is a bad thing rises. And you can see particularly in the uh, southern European countries like Greece, uh, a huge spike from 07. The proportion saying membership is a bad thing jumps from about you know, 6 or 7% way up towards 35%. So southern Europe, the countries that are hammered by the Eurozone crisis, are really not very happy with the EU at all. It also affects the contributor countries like Germany. And so overall, the view that membership is a bad thing, uh, that, that those who have a negative image of the European Union who say they haven't benefited from membership, all those indicators rising quite rapidly after the economic crisis. Tend not to trust the EU. That goes from 40% way up to 80% just in the period from about 2009 to 2012. So that kind of tells you that the Eurozone crisis really was a, a huge blow to the European project. Some again would say, however, that this is largely due to the fact that people are blaming their own politicians nationally and that the EU is catching it for the failures of their own politicians. So for example, if you look at Southern Europe, the proportion who are satisfied with European democracy drops from something like 60% to looks like 30% in the period from 2007 to 2012. But likewise, satisfaction with their own democracy in their own country also drops from about 70% down to 30%. So they're dissatisfied with their own national politicians. They're dissatisfied with European politicians. And in countries of the north and center, there is also a drop, but it's not as dramatic. And maybe the point there is that you know, dissatisfaction with EU democracy might be simply a byproduct of dissatisfaction with national democracy. If that's the case, of course, then European Europeanists and the EU doesn't have to worry as much. And they'd say, once this crisis blows over, we'll get the trust back, we'll get the satisfaction back, and we can continue with our project of European integration. Then you get the 2015 migrant crisis. Uh, again, this is a second big blow to the EU. And the, again, the problem is Germany opens its doors to Syria, expects other member states to do the same, to share the burden of these refugees. But of course, citizens of these member states don't think as Europeans, they think as nationals. So they think of, about themselves as Hungarians and Slovaks, not as Europeans. Uh, Germany's view that Europe should be open clashes with Hungary's view that actually they shouldn't be taking refugees. So again, you have a difference of opinion. It's not really sorted out. Uh, it's still not sorted out. And this also um, affects the EU. The other problem, too, is this feeds into this view that uh, being part of the EU means relinquishing control over your borders. So people can move around in Europe. In most European countries, they don't really mind European immigration, but they do mind non-European immigration. Uh, and that the view is, well, if the borders of Europe are leaky, then we're going to be getting all kinds of people that we don't want. Uh, 
Uh, and that lies behind a lot of the EU migrant crisis. So the EU migrant crisis really coming in on top of that Eurozone crisis, which in turn came in on top of declining support for the European Union. So really, the EU has suffered a number uh, of setbacks, really, in the 2000s. And now I think some of that rhetoric of um, ever closer union, Europe of the region, seems to have faded somewhat. Uh, I think the pro-Europeans seem to be more talking more about a multi-speed Europe that says you can have as much Europe as you want or as little Europe as, as you want. To a point, you still have to accept free movement. Cameron's trying to reform free movement. He's not getting anywhere with that. So there are still certain baselines, but some of the idealistic talk of ever closer union does seem to have faded, but it hasn't been explicitly repudiated, uh, which is something that the UK Independence Party and other <coughs> skeptics want. So just to conclude here, as to say that the idea of Europe uh, and of closer integration is at least a 1,000 years old. It goes back to those old notions of Christendom and the new Rome. Um, however, many aspects of uh, the EU challenged national sovereignty, and it's that tension between the EU and national sovereignty which is important. I want to say one thing, however, and that is that there is a strand of the EU that can be seen as not challenging national sovereignty, even reinforcing it. So if you imagine that Europe built a wall around itself, that would actually make Germany and the Netherlands more secure, right? So fortress, if you take a fortress Europe position and see the EU as an institution which protects Europe, then actually that can be seen as a good thing by nationalists. So if, if the EU makes a treaty with Turkey, if it sends its ships out to the Mediterranean to keep asylum seekers away, then someone in the Netherlands or Germany might say, actually, the EU is, is a first line of defense for me. So that, in some respects, the EU does reinforce national sovereignty. But in many regards, many people in Europe or many Euroskeptics seem to see it as a challenge to national sovereignty. Um, I also mentioned that different nations, because of their histories, have uh, either a more or less favorable, favorable approach to the EU. Uh, Britain tends to be more skeptical, whereas small countries, poor countries, or those at the heart of Europe tend to be more favorable to the EU. And finally, in the, uh, the last 10 or 15 years, there seems to have been a pronounced trend towards Euroscepticism, and the EU has suffered a number of important setbacks uh, and, and a number of important crises. And it remains to be seen how these crises are going to be resolved.